Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. You don't have a brain tumor, the first neurologist said. You need new lenses, the first ophthalmologist said. You may have a sinus infection, the owner of the bagel shop said, along with my physician. It was late February, three months after the 2016 election, and my vision had blurred. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to essayist Alyssa Bassist about Hysterical, a memoir. Alyssa writes about the period of time during which she was racked with pain, unable to speak, and bouncing from one doctor to another, none of whom could diagnose her, but all of whom treated her with medications of one kind or another. Those medications had side effects that sometimes derailed her even further. And just in her early 30s, she was exhausted by the struggle. Then an acupuncturist suggested learning to use her voice. Turned out she hadn't learned how, but when she did, it made all the difference. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for joining me today. I can't wait to talk to you, Billy. When did you start writing Hysterical, and how did you decide on the title? So 12 years ago, in 2010, I really wanted to write a book. I wanted it more than I'd ever wanted anything in my life, and I had nothing to write about, which was a problem, and I was very stuck. I could only think of one topic, which was my ex-boyfriend's. So I started there and got into all the nuances of how I felt about them and they felt about me and the greater themes about sexism and losing my voice in relationships. Then as I was writing this book, years into writing it, I got sick and I had decided I didn't want to write any book. I did not want to write a book anymore. I just wanted to survive And then a little bit after my sickness, 
I couldn't ignore that so many of the themes that I had noticed in my past relationships and in school and at work were overlapping with experiences I had in the doctor's office. And it was all the same sexism in different forms. So then I started writing part two of the book, which became hysterical. And it was a confluence of these similar themes happening in different scenarios. And I was thinking of hysterical one day during a nap where I had so many different iterations of the book. It was at first called The Power of Negative Thinking, then Distracted, then Heartbreak Torture Machines, then Shut Up! Exclamation Point. And one day during a nap, I was thinking about how I wish my book were titled Shrill, but Shrill is already taken by Lindy West. Mm. So then I was thinking, well, if Shrill's already taken, what's the one word that describes my book? Hysterical. It just came to me so quickly. And I was like, wow, it was such a genius light bulb moment because hysterical works on at least eight different levels for this book. It's a book about uncontrolled extreme emotion. It's about a medical condition that's mysterious. It's about how emotions translate physically in the form of symptoms. It's a funny book. It's a book about being called names. It's um, it's about how to overcome that name calling. Um, so I did it. I came up with that title and I am very proud of myself. It's brilliant. <laughs> I want to know if getting accolades about the book is a nice bit of revenge against those sixth grade mean girls who destroyed your childlike enjoyment of the world. And if not, do you want me to call them and make sure they know about the book? I would love it if you called them and just did a huge PR campaign targeted at <laughs> um, them knowing that I wrote a book. I mean, honestly, they're, I don't think about them, <laughs> um, but I do think about how difficult it is to be a teenager and how all of your emotions seem to come in your body at one time and you have no idea what to do with them and you have no perspective whatsoever and how it was just my most difficult time in life. And I'm sure so many teenagers are experiencing that right now, especially with social media. I'm not sure I would have survived had social media existed at the time. Mm. And I do like to think about all the mean girls because a writing prompt I give my students is to write about something you don't want the people you went to high school with to read about you. Because I feel like those are the best stories and that's where our most human vulnerability lies. And that's what we can relate to the most as readers. So I feel like they gave me this gift of everything that I don't want them to read is what I want everyone else to read. Mm, Good point. You write that every text and email and conversation were auditions for love. Did that apply in all situations? And can you say more about it? Yeah. So I just felt like I had to be likable in order to be lovable. And I was always trying to be deferential, agreeable, pleasing, complimentary, 
to make a man like me, love me, not hurt me, not fire me, and so on, not reject me overall. And um, so I felt like I was always warping my voice and doing all these kinds of vocal acrobatics in order to say what everyone else wanted to hear. And in the meantime, I lost my voice and I mark the losing of it when I got online and started when I basically moved online, when Gmail, Gchat, social media, when that first came around, I took every opportunity to improve, edit, upgrade my voice and what I was saying so that I would not be a crazy psycho bitch, so that I would come across as the ideal woman. But my every effort pretty much failed because I found out that the ideal woman is a silent woman. Mm. It made me tremendously sad. I mentioned this already to you to read what you had to say about the patriarchy. Why? Because I thought my generation had made so many strides for women and everyone's going to have to read the entire essay to really get the gist of it. But in a nutshell, what's your take on that? Well, I think the patriarchy is so ingrained, like we've had it since the beginning of time. So it's not going to take one generation to undo it. It's going to take multiple generations to undo it. And for every gain, there is a backlash. And we see that now with Me Too, thinking that that had sort of cracked open the world. And it did, but then it was too much. And there has now been a concerted effort to take away women's voices. And we see that everywhere with, with um, taking away Roe v. Wade. Um, and there are so many similar examples along those lines. So it's, it's something we have to keep fighting for and never rest. I feel like once we feel like we've achieved it is when they're going to trick us and take more away. So the fight has always been there and it's going to take every generation to undo it for, I don't, I don't know when it will be done. If ever. Yeah. None of us do. So after a few bad experiences, why didn't you choose all female doctors? And if you did, were they also imprecise about your pain and how to manage it? I kind of want to go yell at them on your behalf. (laughs) I mean, I don't think the problem is gender. I don't think all men are bad and all women are good. Um, I don't, I, I think what is the real problem is this idea of gender and and of binaries and um, what we have internalized about gender and how we not only act, but how we perceive. So I feel like all women are men in some way. Like we have internalized so much of the patriarchy, patriarchal thought and patriarchal attitudes towards everyone. Um, So many of my doctors who were women were as dismissive as my doctors who were men. And some definitely had a lot more sympathy and could have a lot more empathy. That was for sure. 
Um, but the problem is, is how we view women as a society and how we routinely don't believe them and inherently don't listen to them. And so the problem I felt was less in the gender of the doctor than in the perception of the female gender. Hmm. A nephrologist who deals with kidney diseases puts you on a no water diet, but you're a Denverite and that sounds like a good way to kill a person. What, what finally fixed the problem of low sodium in your blood? And is that all okay now? So my gastroenterologist who is a woman told me, had asked me, what if nothing's wrong with you the day before she had diagnosed me with a fatal blood disease that she found based on my lab work and I was slowly dying. And, um, then I had to go to a kidney doctor who's a nephrologist who had said, basically your body is drowning itself. So you can't have water. And I don't know if you've ever tried to not have water, but it's the most painful feeling to be thirsty. Like I, I just remember feeling starving for water. Um, and I wasn't allowed to excrete any water. Like I could pee, but I couldn't sweat. Um, so this was, that was a very scary, very scary time. And that's why a lot of people who have what I had called hyponatremia, they have to go to the ICU and they have to be um, monitored closely and be on fluids that are highly regulated because it's so difficult to do it yourself. But at the same time, we had realized that I was essentially allergic to a medication I was on that was depleting the sodium in my blood. So I, as I was weaning off of that, I was gaining sodium points. I was gaining sodium in my blood. So I ended up being okay that time, but had a few more near-death experiences after that which sounds dramatic and unbelievable, but it happened and it happens to women all the time. You write that you took a mood stabilizer the day after the 2016 election. I'm wondering if the election and the subsequent disrespect directed at women affected you more than your personal issues or was it just one more thing to contend with? It was one more thing to contend with. This was building in me and it had reached the point of no return at the election. And I was not willing to admit that it was getting to me in terms of like on a cellular level. I was certainly on the surface, very mad and scared and confused and feeling at least 15 other different emotions. But then I was sick and I did not make the connection between my emotional state and my physical state. Only later on around the midterm elections and what was happening around that time was also Me Too was just tweeted. All of these titans of industry were falling, but not very far. Um, my former bosses were implicated. Men were also 
like coming back from their falls from grace. Like I remember my back went out the day that Louis CK returned to comedy and I, I did not make the connection until later on. And there was also personal tragedy and turmoil that was happening. Um, so it was just, it was so many factors at once. And I had learned through a lot of research in this book and through talking to other women that it's common that when there's a lot of political upheaval, that there's personal upheaval in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say more about how you had to learn to use your voice? So I had to go to a professional to get my voice back. I was diagnosed with OCD a year before I sought treatment because I did not think I had OCD because everything I knew about OCD, I learned from TV, which misrepresents literally everything. Um, And OCD can be, um, it can be mental as well as physical. And mine was mental in terms of, I was obsessively afraid to say the wrong thing. And I compulsively silenced myself and censored myself to avoid any retribution for what I had said, because so many times in my life, I had been punished for speaking my mind, for talking about my pain, emotional and physical, for saying no. And I had learned not to do any of that anymore. And so I was unable to advocate for myself in a doctor's office. I was unable to listen to myself above all others. I was unable to be in control of my life because I just felt like I didn't trust myself because I was so reliant on other people's opinions of me. And I had good reason to be afraid of my voice because women are murdered every day for being women and for saying no and for speaking their minds. And the threat is very real. So once I was in OCD therapy, I learned about the fear system and how the fear system is primitive and it responds to behavior. And I needed to rewire my fear system because I was so on edge. And I think every woman feels the same way where just leaving your house can be life-threatening, you know, Um, and whether it's a real threat or not, it feels real and we have real reason to be afraid. Um, So part of learning to speak again was learning to rewire my fear system and not put so much stock into the repercussions of what I was saying. Because when I did that, then I wouldn't say anything. And that took priority over what I had to say. So first I had to learn all about that and become aware of what I was doing and how my body was responding and how even though I could know better, for example, I have a minor in women and gender studies Um, I have been a feminist since birth. The fear system guarantees that you can know better and still not act better because the fear system just hijacks your hijacks, your survival instincts so that um, you're going to be nice 
to an assailant as opposed to um, do what you need to do to actually survive. Um, I get into this in a lot more detail in the book. So in OCD therapy, we did a bunch of exercises where I practiced saying no. And I practiced saying what I was thinking. And I risked the punishment and the fallout from doing those things. And I lost some relationships after finally expressing myself, but I got healthier and I realized those were relationships I didn't need anymore. If, if it meant sacrificing my voice to keep them. Mm-hmm. After months of terrible headaches, you learned that you had a genetic mutation that doesn't allow your liver to break down medication. Shouldn't they have figured that out sooner? There's so much science research and the medical community should have figured out sooner, but they don't dedicate their time and resources to figuring out things that plague women. I feel like the mammogram should be figured out by now. Um, Knowing where the clitoris is and its function should be figured out by now. These are things that are not figured out yet we are still not we, we are still figuring out drug dosages for women um, because it's very different than for men. Like there's so much that seems like we should have figured it out centuries ago, but haven't been able to. And so late in my medication journey was I given the option of taking a genetic test that would tell me what drugs I could tolerate. This is a drug test called GeneSight. Mine was covered by insurance, out of pocket. I believe it's like $300. And it tells you if your body will respond well to Prozac and not respond well to Lexapro. And I just wish this were a standard practice. I'd, I'd heard rumors of it in my life, but no doctor had presented it as an opportunity. It was always trial and error. And that's just not true. So if anything, I hope people get from my book that you can take something called gene sight to figure out which medication is right for you. That's a really good point. You suffered from a lot of physical pain. Can I ask everyone wants to know how you're feeling these days? Thank you for asking. I'm feeling better, but as long as misogyny, sexism, and patriarchy continue to flourish, my and so many other people's symptoms will continue to flare up. In a particularly stressful news cycle where our fundamental rights are on the line, I will get a headache, I will get a backache, I will respond physically to it. I now have better skills to express that as opposed to repress it. And that's still a practice. I have to practice expressing over repressing every single day. But I don't think any of us will be truly healthy until we solve a lot of political problems and we address a really crappy medical system. Hmm. Are we continuing to backtrack on women's equality in film, television, and politics, or are we still slowly making strides? Are you optimistic about that? I think it's hopeful. I mean, I... I see people doing better and becoming more aware. And certainly as audiences and consumers, we're becoming more aware. I wish it were true that 
entertainment were becoming more diverse. I just read an article in the New York Times doing kind of like um, wrap up of Me Too, like five years later, what has changed and what hasn't. And a lot of media and entertainment tried to change and it didn't make any money. So they're reverting back to the old models that privilege one perspective, the white male perspective. So that's disheartening that um, so much is dictated by money and tradition and fear of doing something different and of trying that for a long amount of time. So that's sad, but I also know there are a lot of incredible artists out there who are doing their thing and they're working really hard to create diverse narratives and diverse storytelling. And as an audience member and a consumer, I make more of an effort to pursue those avenues as opposed to just going to see the next Marvel movie. So I think change is happening. We just have to continue being aware, making better choices knowing that what we vote for, what we watch matters and that we can't take those decisions lightly and that it's not a good idea to just go with the flow, go with the status quo. Um, We have to seek out the alternatives because they just might not be there in plain sight. But politics we saw with the midterm elections, that was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. But there's still so much work to do, and hate is definitely on the rise. And that just means we have to, again, keep fighting and keep working for the vision that we want to see. Well, on that note, what's your next project? Are you working? What are you working on next? I am working on a craft book to show and teach other people how to be funnier in writing their tragedies. And um, it's an overall craft book on how to write comedy with uh, a big focus on how to write tragic comedy, how to turn our tragedies into comedies, how to be funnier on the page and in life. And there are really easy ways to do it. The thesis of the book is like, comedy is hard, or is it? And then the answer is no, it actually isn't. Follow all these tricks and you too can be funny. Oh, good. I want to take that. I want to buy that book. I want to take another class from you. But no, I'm not funny. But you are. So I'm wishing you great success in getting this book out into lots of different readers. And thank you so much for joining me today, Alyssa Bussist. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Alyssa Bassist about her debut book, Hysterical, a Memoir. Hope you have a juicy novel to cuddle up with today and every day. Happy reading. <laughs>